today on The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. Open our hearts, change us from within by the open word. Give us ears to hear your truth and eyes to see the needs around us as we draw. You know the difference between confession and heartbrokenness. You know, somebody says, hey, wasn't that you? And the kid has crumbs all over and says, wasn't that you that took those cookies? No, not me, not me. Then where all those crumbs come from? Okay, I did it. But there's no sorrow. The sorrow comes when a heart is actually broken. Some children are very tender that way. You, you point to their wrong and they're broken because of it. And others stand in, in stark, you know, just, just oh, no, I'm, I'm, you're not going to break me. If you have more than one child, you've probably seen both of those things. For David, he was heartbroken. King David didn't simply confess his sins, but he truly had a broken heart. In this study, Pastor David will be teaching the bloodline of Jesus and some key stories of his ancestors here on earth. Jesus had a broken family. It's the story of sinners who God redeemed for his purposes. And King David was one of them. He was a great king, but he committed significant sin. However, what you'll see in David's story today is a man who truly repents. The Lord redeemed David and included him in Jesus' family line. Now here's Pastor David in the book of Matthew chapter 1 with today's edition of The Open Word. None of his descendants shall prosper, sitting on the throne of David and ruling anymore in Judah. Now, that suddenly brings out a big problem. If none of his descendants are going to sit on the throne of David, then how does Jesus get there? Well, again, this is working through Joseph's lineage and not the lineage of Mary. Uh, it would not have worked out for the lineage of Christ. So we find that uh, Jeconiah, he was a descendant actually from Solomon, the son of David. But in Luke's account, Jesus is actually a descendant from another son of David, Nathan. Now, Nathan is again in the bloodline of Mary that we find in Luke. And since Joseph, though, was the legal father of Jesus, his lineage does work as, again, the right for Jesus to be able to be the Messiah, but then so does Mary's. I know it's a little confusing, but again, it's part of the legal system of the Jews, and it's God's plan, and it's God's purpose to work his will out through them in spite of, again, the legal ramifications of the Jews. God's determined that he was going to work through it. Now, in both the lineage of Matthew and the one that's found in Luke chapter 3, there's a lot of the same names prior to the time of David. However, we'll we'll find some of the names that appear to be the same later on are actually different as these two lines split 
from David, one going along the line of Solomon, the other one going along the line of Nathan. There's another confusing thing in the lineages of Matthew. Matthew begins with Abraham, and then he goes forward until we end in verse 16, saying that Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. However, Luke, he actually begins with Jesus, and he moves backward until finally in Luke uh, chapter 3, verse 38, he ends with the, actually the, the ultimate origin. He says that in the son of Enos was the son of Seth, who was the son of Adam, who was the son of God. And yet neither Matthew nor Luke pull any punches as far as the characters that they list. Now, Matthew doesn't list all in that lineage, all in those generations. He doesn't list all those names. But it's interesting, the ones he does include. You know, if, if I was writing this thing and I wanted to kind of clean up the picture, I'd leave out a few, but that's not the case. I mean, let's look for, for Matthew. We look at the first one, Abraham. Now, Abraham, he was definitely, man, he was, he, was, he was the father of the Israelites. He was the father of faith. There's no doubt about it. God had made him the father of many nations. And yet, even Father Abraham had his downfalls. If you don't believe me, ask uh, Sarah, his wife, or was she his sister, or was she his wife? Well, it depends upon the circumstances. Jacob one of the twin boys of Isaac and Rebekah. Again, that, that whole family was deceitful. Jacob, known as the, the, the trickster or the, the heel catcher, uh, he learned his trade actually from his mother. Rebekah kind of taught him how to deceive his own aging father, her husband, in order that he could steal the birthright from his own older brother. And so the family of Esau, they've had problems with that. Uh, for As a matter of fact, they still have problems with that because of the deceitfulness. And yet, Jacob is in the birth line of Christ. Matthew, when he wrote his genealogy, in fact, the whole book of Matthew, definitely, it's written for the Jews, and it specifically deals, it's interesting, specifically in Matthew, he deals with certain women within the bloodline of Jesus. Four Old Testament women, to be precise, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Now, each of these women, as well as the men that they're connected to, were pretty questionable, to to say the least. Two of them, Tamar and Rahab. Uh, Rahab, we know, is a prostitute. Tamar uh, pretended to be a prostitute and went through the act of prostitution. She deceived her father-in-law, Judah, who was actually just as guilty as she was, She tricked Judah into thinking that she was just a regular old street prostitute. And so Judah goes into her, and sure enough, she conceives, and she bears a set of twins, Perez and Zerah. So that gets pretty confusing if you hadn't thought about it. Is he my dad or is he my grandfather at that point in time? Well, that's that's part of the lineage of Christ right here. Perez is, is, is also listed in the lineup, again, towards King David. So he's actually in both lists, Mary's list as well as Joseph's list. Rahab, we know the story of Rahab. No getting around it. She had a house of ill repute, 
she located it on the wall there of that wicked city, Jericho, when the two spies that Joshua sent out to spy out the land got trapped in the city of Jericho. They ran and hid there. She hid them up on the rooftop in the midst of her sinful lifestyle she came to realize that the God of Israel was the one true God. And so she allows these two spies to escape. And the Lord, through Joshua, a little while later, allowed her and her family to escape the destruction of Jericho. And then later on, she marries one of those two spies, Salmon. Now, this Jewish man, Salmon, and his new Canaanite ex-prostitute wife ended up having a son by the name of Boaz. Now, Boaz became a powerful, he became a rich landowner there in Israel. Some years later, a Moabite woman followed her Israeli mother-in-law back to Israel after they had both lost their husbands, and it was Boaz who blessed this Moabite Ruth and later took her on as his wife. And yet prior to that, you need to understand, Ruth had been involved in the pagan worship of the Moabites, and yet she committed her life to God as she was coming back to Israel with Naomi. Ruth chapter one, verse 16, tells us that Ruth said to Naomi, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. For wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God will be my God. I believe that that was the conversion experience of Ruth right there. And so now as a converted Jew, Boaz takes her as his wife. From the union of this converted Moabite pagan woman and this Jewish man comes again, the son, by the way, and the Jewish man, Boaz, he was the son of a harlot. And so between that union comes a son by the name of Obed. Now, who Obed became the father of Jesse, who became the father of David, the king of Israel. How's your family line lining up? How much of a mess, really, does your life need to be in before God can't or won't use you? I haven't found one yet that's tipped the scale. You look throughout the word of God, you hear the testimonies of men and women through the years. You say, yeah, God used them in spite of the choices that they had made. And God used them in in spite of the directions that they had gone. I think we find all through scripture and all through life that God majors on the messes in order that his glory shines through and not the glory of man. He takes the worst of cases and shows himself strong on their behalf. Even when we get to the great king of Israel, David, the son of Jesse, what a mess. Let's face it, this guy apparently had a terrible weakness in his flesh. And the enemy of his soul tried to do him in. Satan tried to destroy him in the midst of his power, but in the midst of his weakness. 
See, David had great power and authority in a worldly sense, but he had a great weakness spiritually. Ah, but God, you see, that's where God comes in. God comes in and provides what we don't have. God comes in and fills us and strengthens us where we become weak and at our worst. After David had committed adultery and and murder, thinking that he could cover his sin so that no one could see it, guess who saw it? God saw it. And God loved David enough to not let Satan destroy him completely. Oh, I, I, you know, we look at this and say, yeah, but why was Bathsheba on top of the roof, uh, you know, bathing there? Wasn't she partly at fault? You know, the customs of the time, uh, I'm not even going to go there. The one thing we do know, because David owned up to the sin, was that David was guilty. Now, if Bathsheba had a part in that, that's okay. I'm not going to throw her under the bus. This is David's thing. So again, rather than allowing Satan to have his way in completely destroying David, God brought conviction to David. Now, a lesser man would have just rebuffed the words of Nathan the prophet when Nathan came in. As a matter of fact, as king, he could have said, I'll have your head you know, before the sun falls tonight. He could have done that. But when the convicting words of Nathan the prophet came to the very spirit and soul of David, David's heart was broken before man and before God. He had had an illicit relationship with another man's wife. She became pregnant. And so to get him out of the situation, he actually killed her husband to cover up his own sin. And yet, as the word of God declares, be certain your sin will find you out. When your sin is found out, though, here's where the question comes in. How do you respond? How do you respond when when suddenly the the reality of your character suddenly shines through or the, the, the actions, the attitudes suddenly, suddenly break through, through. Man, it might have been a point of weakness, but bam, suddenly it's there. And somebody says, man, I thought you were a Christian. I thought you were one of those that professed to be a believer. And the attitude or the action or the words come through. Fortunately for David, he confessed his sin. And we see that really he was, he was truly heartbroken because of it. Those of you that have raised children, you know the difference between confession and heartbrokenness. You know, somebody says, hey, wasn't that you? And the kid has crumbs all over his face. Wasn't that you that took those cookies? No, not me, not me. (laughs) Then where all those crumbs come from? Okay, I did it. But there's no sorrow. The sorrow comes when a heart is actually broken. Some children are very tender that way. You, you point to their wrong and they're broken because of it. And others stand in, in stark, you know, just, just oh, no, I'm, I'm, you're not going to break me. If you have more than one child, you've probably seen both of those things. For David, he was heartbroken. Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is actually the testament of the brokenness of David and his hunger for renewed relationship with God. I believe it's verse five where in, in chapter 51 of Psalm where he says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity 
and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge, I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. See, David was tormented with his guilt. And then he goes, against you, as he's crying out to God, against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Now, you, sometimes we, we say, well, wait a minute, what do you mean? Only against God. Uh, Uriah the Hittite, he's dead. Bathsheba was taken advantage of by his power and by his authority and bore a child because of it. What do you mean he's only sinned against God? If you understand the reality of what sin really is, what I do to you is simply a, a, a symptom or a consequence of my sin against God. It's when I sin against God that I treat you horribly. It's in my sin against God that my own ego flares up and I want my own way. It's in my sin against God that, that we mistreat those that are around us. David understood the reason that he did what he did against Uriah and against Bathsheba was because his heart wasn't right with God. You and I, we cannot have a right relationship on the horizontal plane unless we have a right relationship with God on the vertical plane. We can try to be nice to each other. We can make every effort that we can in our own flesh. But if we're not walking in the spirit, if our relationship with God is not right, guess what? I'm gonna tick you off sometime and you're gonna irritate the heck out of me at times. And, and we're, we're just not gonna have any room for each other. And there's no sweetness of fellowship because there's nothing that really binds us together. The thing that binds us together is the spirit of God. And it's when we are in right relationship with God that then our relationship with others, we know that's true in husband and wife relationships. Amen? Amen. Amen. Don't go there, pastor. Not tonight. Not tonight. Says against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Now, he's not using that as an excuse. He's just saying, you know what? I, I'm, just, I'm just a sinner all over. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. That's not just what people see. That's what you know to be true when no one else is looking. He goes on down and says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Uh, Did God break any of David's bones in the midst of this? No, no. But that's just the feeling that he's experiencing. He's just broken because of this. He says, uh, hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. One that's going to keep track and keep the pace and keep on level, that steadfast spirit. Don't cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me by your generous spirit. Then, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. God did forgive David. God gave David another chance. 
That baby died. That baby that Bathsheba was carrying did die. But in God's forgiveness, David actually bore four other sons through Bathsheba. Shemia, Shobab, Nathan, and Solomon, these four by Bathsheba, the daughter of Amiel. First Chronicles tells us that. Well, it was through Solomon that we then find Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, of Joseph's lineage. Again, the legal guardian of Jesus. Yet it was Nathan, another son of David and Bathsheba, that again came the lineage of Christ through Mary. So as the son of Bathsheba, it was through Nathan that the Savior was born. Our God, everything we see in this, our God is a God of reconciliation. Our our God, we, we see it all through his plan. He is a God of redemption. He shows it to us all throughout his his creation. We see it even in the lineage of Jesus. His lineage, the very lineage of our Savior is the testimony of reconciliation and redemption. His very family line. And how amazing is that? Our God can take our messes. He can resurrect them for his glory. What seems to be death in the sight of this world is actually life in the arms of Jesus and in in the presence and for the purposes of God. When we look at our lineage, you and I, we might come from kings and princes or good stock and civic leaders. We might be able to declare a, a, a godly heritage that went before us, yet each one of us, we have to stand in our own right and none of us have anything to boast about, do we? I don't care how good the lineage was before us. I don't care how good our lives have been. None of us have anything to boast about. Even the Apostle Paul, with all of his degrees, with all of his pedigrees, he, he, he tells us in Philippians chapter 3, he says, though I might have some confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he might have confidence in the flesh, I, I more so. Man, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Concerning the law, I was a Pharisee. That meant he kept every jot and tittle, everything. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, I was blameless on the outside. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. And yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. If anybody had a lineage that he could be proud of, it had been the Apostle Paul. Paul says, man, that's nothing. I am nothing. And when we look at a lineage like Christ had, we understand, you know what? God can use anyone. And so we have nothing to boast about. Open our hearts. 
As the Christmas season approaches, you can easily find yourself overwhelmed with the to-do lists, parties, gift-giving, decorating. The list goes on and on. We'd like to invite you to take a moment, however, and enjoy the peace and joy this season promotes. Remember why you're celebrating. Jesus came to live among people and love them like never before. Because of Him, you're here right now listening to this program. We hope this moment of peace renews a love for your Savior in your hearts and fills you with hope. If you'd like to hear more messages from The Open Word, you'll find them at theopenword.com. Before our time with you is up today, we'd also like to invite you to be a part of our weekly worship gatherings. Here's Pastor David with more information. Yes, we here at Calvary Chapel of Casa Grande, we have a seat waiting for you at one of our three weekend worship services. Come by on Saturday at 6.30 or Sunday at 9 or 11 o'clock. And even Wednesday night at 6.30. We guarantee you'll meet some smiling faces, a diverse group of Jesus-loving people, all on a journey to learn more about the Savior and the truth of His Word, the Bible. Come as you are, and you'll fit right in. You'll be able to find more about us when you visit our website, theopenword.com. Thanks, Pastor David. That website again is theopenword.com. Just follow the link to our church's homepage. We're excited to worship Jesus with you. Thanks for tuning in today to The Open Word, and Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.